Hey everyone, my name is Adam and welcome to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. At the end of today's episode, please take a minute and download our free Chestnut Ridge app. It has all our recent message content and more. You can also head to theridge.church to get information on service times and get info on everything going on here at the Ridge. We hope this podcast will encourage and inspire you as you continue to grow in your relationship with God and others. The um, third president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson, is the one who's credited as writing the Declaration of Independence. He's the one that said these words, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all people or all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What many of you may not be familiar with is another of Jefferson's published works. He was quite a writer, and he published what has been called the Jefferson Bible. I don't know how many of you are familiar with, familiar with the Jefferson Bible, but um, what he did, and he, by the way, just uh, to be clear, here's the, he's not the one who came up with the title. His actual title on here was The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. My version says Jefferson Bible and then the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. The reason the thing is called a Bible, though, the Jefferson Bible, is that what Jefferson did was he took a sharp blade and he grabbed a a Bible and he cut out various teachings of Jesus and the things in the Gospels that he liked, and then he left out the things that he did not like, and he pasted it together and became what was known as the Jefferson Bible. His version of the Bible leaves out all the miracles. His version of the Bible does not include any supernatural type events, and so he doesn't have, for example, that angels announce the birth of Jesus. He didn't believe in things like that. He didn't believe in the virgin birth. And his version of the Bible ended with Jesus still in the tomb. These are the words, now in the the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulcher wherein was never man yet laid. There laid they Jesus and rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed for Jefferson. That's the end of the story. And it kind of saddens me when I think of that because it's very clear that Jefferson's view of Jesus, it was very different than mine. Jefferson says this about his own works. He said, I have performed this operation for my own use. Originally, he did it just for himself, cutting out what he wanted and pasting it together. I performed this operation for my own use by cutting verse by verse out of the printed book and arranging the matter which is evidently his. In other words, Jesus is. He arranged what he thought Jesus actually said, and he got rid of the rest. And then he said, arranging the matter which is evidently his and which is easily distinguishable as diamonds in a dunghill. I I don't know if you catch the implication of what Jefferson was saying there. But he said, I I pulled out what I thought were the diamonds and the rest of it is is like a pile of manure. All All the miracles, all the supernatural, the resurrection of Jesus, the concept of a trinity. Now, my point here this morning is not to talk about what Jefferson did or did did not believe. I want to talk about the issue that he struggled with, which is a 
issue I think we all should wrestle with a little bit, and that is just who exactly was Jesus? And was he really divine? Was he really God? Jesus once asked his disciples the question, who do the people say that I am? And they responded, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And then Jesus looked at them and said, yeah, but who, who do you say that I am? That's the question I wish everybody would ask him or herself. Who do you say Jesus is? From your perspective, who is Jesus? Peter responded on this occasion, and he said he is the Messiah. He's the son of the living God. That statement, by the way, is a statement of Peter's faith in the divinity of Jesus. Jesus went by the title most of the time in the gospel, says son of man, and he was focusing on his humanity. To be a son of man means to be that you're a person, a human. To call someone a son of God means they're divine. And that's what Peter was affirming here today. Now you say, well, why does all of this matter? Well, it comes down to that our faith is only as good as the thing which is placed. You can have all the faith in the world that if you jump out of a window, you won't fall straight down. But if your faith is misplaced, and our faith is in a savior who we believe was God, divine. It's something we don't want to get wrong, by the way, concerning the deity of Jesus Christ, because if Jesus is not God, we better not be worshiping him like we do, like the last song that we sang in the set, the new song. It's a song of worship to Jesus. And we worship Jesus because we believe he's God, we believe he's divine. And if Jesus is God, he should be worshiped. But if he's not God, we're violating the first of the Ten Commandments. And I don't think we want to get this one right, but it is important that our faith be planted in something that's worth our trust. John three sixteen. 16, most of you can quote it. God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Put your trust in Jesus. Make Jesus the object of your trust question I'm raising is, is he worthy of that? Is, is he worthy of our trust? And on what basis? My first trip to Honduras out of about a dozen times that I've been down there, my first one was horrible. It was a frightful trip. From the beginning to the end of the trip, it was frightful. So much happened on this trip. Uh, sometime I'll fill in the details for those, those that haven't heard it. It's things like when I got to immigration, they pulled me in a back room tried to get me to bribe, or bri they tried me to get me to bribe them, give them money. But the flight itself was frightful. I flew on an airline that was called Sasa, S-A-H-S-A. -S My Honduran friends who speak good English said, Sasa stands for stay at home, stay alive. That's how the airline was viewed in their country, and I was flying on it, and this was an airline where they didn't even speak any English on the flight. Most flights between countries speak both languages, but they didn't, it was all in Spanish. And I knew that there was probably a, an issue with this flight when we got to cruising out altitude. The flight attendants, as soon as we were leveled out, they brought out carts filled with bottles of hard liquor, and they were giving it to everybody. Whoever wanted it, and they went back and forth the whole flight with this. I thought, do these people know something I don't know? That's really the question that popped into my mind. Do they know something I don't know? 
I was sitting in a window seat and I looked out at a certain point and I saw a cloud coming up. It was huge. We hit the cloud. That's how I would describe it. We hit the cloud. The moment we entered that cloud, there was an explosion. It sounded like a small bomb. The plane plummeted straight down, probably the distance of a football field. It just went straight down. The overhead compartments opened up, suitcases flew everywhere on the floor, and I was getting ready to stand up and say the only verse I know in Spanish, John 3.16. I thought, well, if we're all going to die, maybe I can take one or two people with me <laughs> to heaven. Last chance to believe in Jesus. It's now or never, we're all going to die. But the flight, the attendance, the plane, all of it was reliable. Every time you walk on a plane, you have to decide, do I trust this thing? Where's the object of your trust? Now, my main takeaway today is this. Jesus is worthy of our trust. He's worthy of our full trust. We can believe in him, and a main reason why is because he was God in the flesh. He was divine. And I would say this, and this might challenge some of you, but I would say this, if Jesus wasn't God, he couldn't do or can't do anything for you. If he's not God, he can't do anything for you. He can't save you. He's not available to you if he's not divine. There are implications to this. And I want to give you five reasons why I'm convinced Jesus is God. First, he claimed it. Jesus claimed to be God. Now, now some of you are probably wondering, where did he say that? Because there are no verses in the Bible where it says Jesus looked at them and said, I am God, worship me. It's not that explicit. And I would suggest that this was very smart on the part of Jesus not to get so explicit because he knew his audience couldn't help or, or, or couldn't uh, handle what he, was, what he would say. But he spoke in subtle and undeniable ways about his deity. He said it in a subtle way, but in a way that you couldn't miss the point. Let me give you two examples, John 8, 58 and 59. Jesus said to them, I assure you, before Abraham was, I am. At that day, the religious leaders picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden and went out to the temple complex. Why did they pick up stones to stone him to death? Well, they thought he'd committed blasphemy. And why did they think he committed blasphemy? Well, he said really two things here that are noteworthy. First of all, he said, before Abraham was... I existed. That's a, quite a claim. Abraham predated Jesus by 2,100 years, and Jesus looks at them and says, I was around before Abraham was. What do you think he's saying there? But then the wording of it was really significant because he didn't say before Abraham was, I was. He said before Abraham was, I am. My study Bible has a footnote here that says this I am is the name God gave himself at the burning bush. In Exodus chapter 3, 13 and 14, Moses asked God his name. And what did he say? What did God say? Well, my name is Yahweh. It means I am, or I am that I am. He's the self-existent one. 
2,100 years would pass. Jesus is standing before the religious leaders and he says, before Abraham was, I am Yahweh. It was very explicit. But um, just to claim it, of course, doesn't mean it's true. But let me give you another example. John 10, 27 to 33. Jesus, again, speaking to the religious leaders, he said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. Let me stop for a moment. But who on earth could give eternal life to somebody else if they're not God? At the very least, whoever's giving it has to be eternal himself. Jesus said, I give them eternal life. Jesus is the one who gives us eternal life. And that says they will never perish, ever. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one's able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. The Father and I are one. This is the main statement. I'm, I'm one with God. One. I and the Father are one. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone, or rocks to stone him. Jesus replied, I've shown you many good works from the Father. Which of these works are you stoning me for? We aren't stoning you for a good work, the Jews answered, but for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. Well, make no mistake about it. He, he, he's, he meant that. Jesus could have said at this point, oh, you, you, no, you, no, no, you misunderstand me. I'm not claiming to be God, please. No, he did not do that because he was God. Now, again, claiming it doesn't make it true. Over the years, there have been a lot of people that claim to be God, pharaohs of old, you know, some of the Roman emperors believed that they were divine and expected worship, that they were sons of God, is how they would sometimes put it here. And I've even known people that have claimed to be God. If I claim to be God, would you believe it? It's, I hope you wouldn't. So claiming it by itself is not enough, but I think it's important to realize Jesus did claim it. But second, Jesus was worshiped. Now, I think we'd all agree that worship is something that's reserved for God. But Jesus was worshipped. You remember these magi came from the east, magi. They were like priest astronomers and they traveled hundreds of miles, probably over months. They entered into Jerusalem. Where is he who's born king of the Jews? We, we saw his star when we were in the east and, and we've now come to what? Worship him. They eventually located Jesus. In Matthew 2.11, we read entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshiped him. He was just a baby, and they worshiped him. I have, I've had five kids. I haven't worshiped any of them. I mean, they're great, wonderful kids. They're not worthy of worship, but this one was. Now, throughout the Bible, we're told you don't worship anyone that's not God. In the book of Revelation, John, who penned the book, um, he, on a few occasions, made a mistake and he began worshiping an angel. He, he, I think the angel was so glorious he thought it was God or he thought it was Jesus. And each time the angel said, don't you dare, get up. I'm a servant just like you are. Don't you dare worship me. That's the correct response if you're accused of being God but you're not or someone tries to worship you. You say, you don't worship people. God told the angels to worship Jesus at his birth though. In Hebrews 1.6, we read, when he, God the Father, brings his firstborn into the world, Jesus, he says, and all God's angels must worship him. He's worthy of worship. 
I think it, by the way, was worship that Thomas proclaimed. Do you remember the disciple Thomas? He wasn't there with the other disciples when Jesus suddenly appeared in a room after the resurrection. And so the 10 disciples that were left told him, told Thomas, Jesus is alive, we've seen it. And Thomas said, I won't believe it. I gotta put my hand in his side, I gotta see the marks. A little bit later, Jesus showed up. When he saw Jesus, this is what he said. In John 20, 28, Thomas responded to him, my Lord and my God. It's an expression of worship. Jesus was God. Jesus was worshiped. The third reason why convinced he's God is that throughout the New Testament, Jesus is depicted as being our creator. Now, if you asked almost anybody who created everything, their first, they'd say, God. I mean, most people just... God, of course God. It comes right out of Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, I believe the entire Trinity was involved with creation. I think they were all part of it. But in John 1, John gives credit to Jesus. Writing about Jesus in John 1, 3, and 4, he said, all things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created Life was in him, and that life was the light of man. Notice the words light and life. That's going back to Genesis 1 again, the first words of God, let there be light. Then God spoke into existence life. And this is who Jesus is. He created all things. Now, what's interesting to me about this claim of John, the gospel writer, is that this is a guy that walked with John for three years, and I've talked about this before, how... He scrutinized Jesus for three years. He saw what Jesus was like in the morning. Most of us don't want anyone to see what we're like in the morning, but John saw how Jesus was like in the morning. He saw how he was like in the evening. He saw what Jesus said in public. He also saw what Jesus said in private. Everything about him. He saw Jesus at his worst, if I could put it that way, when Jesus was sad or angry or tired or weak, whatever it was, when Jesus wasn't feeling well. And he concluded after three years that this, this is the creator. Jesus is the creator. He walked among us. Our God walked among us. It's, it's just amazing. I can't think of anyone I could walk around for three weeks, maybe three days, where I wouldn't conclude, you're not God. And if you walked with me for three days, or three weeks, or three months, I mean, three days, I might be able to fake you out for three days. Like, I'm a pretty good guy. Three months, you got me nailed. Three weeks, I'm dead. They walked for three years, and he concluded he was God. Paul said the same thing about Jesus being our creator. Colossians 1, 15 to 18. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, everything. The visible and the invisible. That means he created the angels. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him, Jesus, all things hold together. He's also the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. In other words, the first one to rise again of his own power. We'll talk about that in a minute. So that he might come to have first place in everything. And there are other places, Hebrews 1, there are other places in the Bible make it clear that Jesus was there at creation. He created everything. So he claimed to be God, he was worshiped, he was our creator. Fourth, he lived a sinless life. 
In Romans 3.23, we read everybody has sinned. All of us fall short of the glory of God. Every single person who's ever been born sins. And you don't have to teach them to sin either. They're born with a sin nature. I never taught any of my kids to lie. They learn that on their own. You know, little kid steals a cookie. You tell the kid you can't have any of the cookies and then he sneaks one. Then you, with crumbs down his face, you ask, did you eat a cookie? No, little liar. You know, you don't, have, you don't have to teach people to sin. It just comes naturally. All of us have sinned, except one, Jesus. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The word know there, when it says God made him who didn't know sin, it's a, a Greek word that means to know experientially means Jesus never experienced sin in his own life. He just didn't know sin. And yet he became for us sin. He took upon himself our sin so that we could be declared righteous by God. That's the good news of the gospel message. A, a, a switch takes place. The sinless one became a sinner so sinners could become sinless in the eyes of God, declared righteous in the eyes of God. That's what Jesus did for us on the cross. John put it this way in 1 John 3, 5, you know that he was revealed so that he might take away sins and there is no sin in him. Now, I made the point when I was doing the last series, When God Walked Alone, based on the book that I wrote about it, I talked about the fact that, the, the fact that Jesus being God is essential to the gospel story because he, he has to be sinless in order to die for your sin or mine. I can't die for your sin. I got my own stuff. I can't save any of you. I'm sorry, I can't. The only one that could save anyone is someone who didn't have sin, and that would be God, only God. God's the only one that's never sinned. And so it points to the deity of Christ, and it's an essential part of the story. If you don't believe that Jesus is God, he can't help you, he can't save you. And Peter said the same thing. Remember, Peter walked with Jesus for three years too, and he said he did not commit sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. Elsewhere in the Bible, we read, I think it's in the book of Numbers, it says all people, all, all people sin. Everybody sins and lies. Sorry, everyone lies. There was no deceit in his mouth, though, and he didn't commit sin. The word sin just means to miss the mark. Jesus never missed the mark. He's the sinless son of God. So he claimed to be God. He was worshiped. He's our creator. He lived a sinless life. And finally, Jesus did things only God could do. I mean, if I threw out the question, you'd probably come up with some answers. What are things that only God could do? Here's some examples I'll give you. One is that he forgave sins. That's something only God can do. In Luke chapter four, we find the story of a, a young man who was paralyzed. His friends brought him or wanted to bring him to Jesus to, for Jesus to heal the guy. The problem was Jesus at the time was in a house and there was a huge crowd in the house and a huge crowd around the house and, and they just couldn't get in to see Jesus. So they came up with a, a clever plan. They uh, climbed up on the roof with the guy and they cut a hole in it and they lowered him down. Probably removed all the hay and everything else, whatever's on the roofs. So they removed all that and they lowered him down. We pick up the story in verse 20 of Luke 5. Seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. Then the scribes and Pharisees began to think, who's this man who blasphemes? 
Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's an appropriate question to ask. Who has the right to claim that they can, they can forgive sins? If you sin against me, I can forgive you for that one offense. I can't absolve you of the rest of it. But Jesus can forgive sins. In verse 22, continuing the story, we read, but perceiving their thoughts, Jesus replied to them, why are you thinking this in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you or get up and walk? He was making the point that both are impossible. So so is it easier just to say, get up and walk? Which one's easier? They're both impossible apart from God. That was his point, verse 24. But so you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He told the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, pick up your mat and go home so you'll know that I have that authority. I have that authority. But he's God. What else did he do that only God can do? Well, the miracles, although some of the miracles especially point to the fact that he he was God. For example, there's a miracle in Mark chapter four that I think fits into this category. The disciples and Jesus got in a boat, they went across the Sea of Galilee and a huge storm arose. Jesus was sleeping, but it was a really bad storm. They thought they were gonna die. The boat was being swamped with water. Uh, It was just horrible. And these are seasoned fishermen and they're scared to death and they wake up Jesus. And they say, don't you care, we're dying. Pick up the story in verse 39. He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the sea, silence, be still. The wind ceased and there was a great calm. Then he said to them, why are you fearful? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked one another, who then is this, even the wind and the sea obey him? Yeah, that's again the right question. Who is this? You know, they were afraid of the storm, but they were equally, it says they were afraid when it stopped. It says they were terrified. They were trembling. They saw Jesus stand up in the boat, be quiet, I'm taking a nap, you know, just be quiet. And all of a sudden it's just a beautiful day perfect night and it freaked them out it did freak out the disciples who is who's this that commands the wind and the waves it's the one who spoke it all into existence in the first place the God of all creation and the last thing that Jesus did that I want to focus on related to this last point that he did things only God could do was he rose again from the dead now some of you are thinking well a lot of people in the Bible rose again from the dead There are examples in both the Old and New Testament. Yeah, that's right. Jesus even raised Lazarus from the dead. Other people had died and been raised again. Nobody did it of their own power before, by means of their own authority. Now, again, I think the whole Trinity was involved in the the resurrection of Jesus. But Jesus said this in John chapter 2. He said, Jesus answered, destroy this sanctuary and I'll raise it up in three days. Therefore the Jews said, this sanctuary took 46 years to build and you'll raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the sanctuary of his body. I mean, what an amazing claim. He said, well, you're gonna kill me, but three days later, I will raise myself up. You kill this body, I'll raise it up. Three days, mark my words. And they did, by the way, because they thought, well, he made the claim, so they posted guards and all, thus proving that the resurrection really took place. 
But he had the authority, the ability to raise himself up from the dead. No one else could do that. So what do we do with this? Well, again, my main takeaway is that he's worthy of our trust. Based on these things, he claimed to be God. He accepted worship. He was our creator. He lived a sinless life, and he did things only God could do. Uh, for some of us that are listening here today, I'm hoping that you'll put your trust in Jesus to be your savior. That's, that's how we get right with God. All of us have a problem with this thing called sin. All of us, are, 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 there's a gap between sinful people and a holy God. The problem is we can't fix it. Have you ever tried to fix your sinfulness? Even if you decided to stop today, tomorrow you'll sin. Thoughts, words, actions, attitudes, we sin in so many ways. We can't fix it. You know, people say, well, you go to church, you'll, you'll go to heaven. No, no. The church is filled with sinful people. I've met a few, including myself. Oh, man, I walked in. You're just a sinner who happens to go to church. It, it doesn't fix the problem. There was only one solution. And throughout the pages of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, I hope to prove that next week, there's been only one solution. It's Jesus the Son of God who lived a sinless life. He entered this world in a unique way, lived a sinless life, died on the cross for you and me, was buried but defeated death when he rose again from the dead, and he defeated sin as well. And we read throughout again the pages of the New Testament that if we put our trust in Jesus to be our Savior, if we make him the object of our trust, God so loved the world, he gave his only Son, whoever believes in him, will not perish but have eternal life. That's the promise God gives us today. Most people do this through a prayer. They just say, I know I've sinned. I can't solve it. I need a savior. Today, I want to put my trust in you, Lord Jesus. You died for me and rose again for me. I want your death and resurrection to count for me. I'm putting my trust firmly in you. Other applications, though, for some of us, maybe it, it just demonstrates that our worship of Jesus is justified. And then when Jesus said, you abide in me and I abide in you like a vine and branches, you can actually do it because he was God. He's God in the flesh, but he, he's able to be there for us. He is worthy of our worship because of what he's done. And for some of us, I want to encourage you to make Jesus the Lord of your life. If Jesus really is God, he should, he should have this authority over our lives. And so Peter put it this way in 1 Peter 3.15, he said, but honor the Messiah Honor Christ as Lord in your heart. You say, okay, this life is not about me. You're the Lord. What do you want me to do? Or Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.15. He died for all so that those who live should not live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. This is a wonderful purpose in life. And you don't have to be in full-time Christian ministry to flesh this out. My purpose is you, Jesus. That's why Paul said for me to live as Christ. I want to live for you. I want to live for you. It's not about living for me. And it can make all the difference in the world. The last point I'd like to make is that um, I encourage you to invite people this Easter. Invite others to meet Christ as we'll be talking about the gospel message in that service. Always on Easter and Christmas, I devote time to really helping people grab a hold of their need to put their trust in Jesus to be their savior. So I invite you to invite others to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that you loved us so much as to send your Son to be our Savior. We acknowledge that he was and is your Son, that he died in our place for our sin. 
and rose again from the dead so that through him we could have life. What an amazing love that you had for us. And we thank you, Lord, that he's worthy of our trust, that our faith is firmly planted in the one who is indeed the hope of our salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening and we will see you next time.